0: like, we were, we were like christmas maybe slightly before christmas I don't know nope. nope. <laughs> 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 <we> <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i do like So, welcome back. There's a trash can in the aisle. And then that exit door on this side is apparently locked, yeah. Yeah. which is horrifying to me. I don't know why it would be locked. Um, and, and last night on PBS they played the documentary about the, the um, oh, what was it called? It was this fire in a factory the the triangle shirtwaist fire in which there was a fire and a lot of people got stuck in a building is very horrifying. And then the next thing I know we come in and one of our exits is blocked. So if there's an emergency, you guys, use the other exit, okay? <laughs> hopefully we won't burn anything down. Nobody, nobody has fire. But some of us are fascinated by fire. is coming in on Friday, correct? Yes. Do we have any homework for questions? It's because it's you've already finished it and submitted it.
1: Maybe it's because you haven't
0: yet looked at it because it's busy, you're busy. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Do the best you can, Richard. You only have to turn in one thing for the homework. Correct. Your one thing you turn in should include a citation for an article. Soon, the Dropbox for Field Notebook Four will open, and you will want to submit your article to Field Notebook Four, assuming that it gets the okay from your section instructor. For those of you who are not chatting at the moment, but who are have not yet found an article, I can save you some time and perhaps a misstep. So there's this article that we know exists, and it comes up really early in JSTOR searches using the key terms we're looking for. And so if you use this article for your homework, or you will not lose credit for it, it's perfectly fine for homework for, but we have learned from bitter experience that this article is terrible. Terrible. It's got wrong information in it. It's old. It's awful. The title of the article is something like Word, Order, and Politeness in Japanese. The article looks like it was written on a typewriter. It's in typewriter font, and the publication date is somewhere in the 1980s. We're going to see how many people turn that in for for homework four. We didn't warn you in time, so you might turn it in. It's worth full full credit for homework four, but if you do turn it in for homework four, we're going to actively dissuade you from using that for your field number four because we know that it's a bad article, even though there's no way to tell from the citation. Yes? I don't recall. We'll publish the full citation as soon as we can so that you can check and see. Um, If you found that article, you didn't do anything wrong but we just happen to have secret information about it that is terrible. So we may dissuade you from using it. Okay. So that is my comment on our calendar so far. So far, and homework four is the last ever homework. Yay! Yeah, so kind of the pace kind of slows down here. Let's see. Ah, I had we had voted last time on what topics we wanted to keep and what we maybe needed to jettison. Given that I'm behind in presenting topics, so
1: this week,
0: last time we met, we talked about question formation processes, right? And then this time, I'm going to focus on pragmatics and politeness. This is the material most relevant to your field. Before then, what I want to do is adjust the upcoming topics in this manner. So I'll take these away. We will go ahead and transition right to animal communication systems after this. We might have some pragmatics information that sloshes over into part of Monday. We'll see how how it goes. Um, But on Monday, we should be able to start the unit on animal communication systems. And then, History of Human Languages was the one that got the fewest votes. So it's gone. Language in the brain, language and consciousness got a lot of votes. So we will spend our, our good time on language in the brain, language and consciousness. Local languages got was the ten ultimate it's the second to the worst. Um, here's what I thought we could maybe do that would liven that up and sort of tie things together in a way that might make sense for us. Language variation is the study of dialectal variation. And dialectal variation in languages relates to their history, and it also relates them to particular places. And I haven't built it into the syllabus before, but I think it would be that people want to know. Like We find dialectal variation interesting, right? So I thought we could maybe sort of do a, a little mini unit at the end, and then that leads us nicely into the unit on to bad words and taboo language. Now, notice that there are no readings assigned for these topics. We don't have a module yet written to cover them. There are a few articles in the Richardson and Hilton text that relate to these ideas, not many. So, so what you get on these topics is what you get from lecture. What we test you on on exam two is what we cover in lecture. All right? So that is my plan for getting us from now till the end. Um, and we will see how that goes. Hopefully it will work out. All right. I posted a little extracurricular activity announcement to D2L. If you're interested in becoming more civically engaged as a youth, um, you should check this out. I also wanted to remind you, so um, our lovely ah, ED Smalley, not EM. I'll fix it. ED, small, with the letter E after that. At email, this is, this is our undergraduate preceptor helper, right? who tells me she's been getting maybe a little bit lonely. So remember, you can contact her for um, appointments, office hours. You can also attend office hours of anybody on the teaching staff. So if your particular section instructor doesn't have office hours that are convenient to you, you can come visit me or somebody else on the staff, and that's fine. There's an old announcement on the D2L homepage that lists everybody's office hours and everybody's email. So what I might do is just promote that guy back up to the top so that over the next few weeks you have recourse to lots of information about how you can get help. And at this point, it would be getting help for field notebook four, and perhaps most importantly. Getting help, making sure that whatever you did wrong on field notebooks one through three, you're very confident that you fixed it. So it would be a great opportunity for you to bring in your field notebooks one through three or sit down with the section instructor and pull them up on the computer and pull up your feedback and talk about how to fix everything because the primary grading criteria for your field report is that you fixed all the problems we pointed out. On the first three field notebooks. Now, in light of that, on the field notebooks and the homework, we've been leaving you feedback in D2L and Dropbox where it says feedback. And weirdly, we can spy on you to know whether you've looked at the feedback. And we find that a lot of students are not reading their feedback. Hmm. I'll make a point. Yes. That you can actually read the feedback without there is a way that you can secretly re- re- read the feedback and we can we can see that behind the scenes too, so that covers some of the folks Right, yeah, shows up the grading right, reading. right. Um, so we can know if you've checked grade book, we can know if you've checked your feedback, and there are many students who seem not, not to be doing that many, I shouldn't say many there's a, there's a group it's probably actually not you guys you're the ones who come to class. You probably also look at your feedback. But if you haven't been looking at your feedback, that's really, really important to do. Um, relatedly, I have three students who actually are probably here today
1: because these
0: are students who have been reliably receiving lecture participation points via their clicker or response wear except None of those points are in D2L because my records don't match up your response, your your device ID with your identity. So you will know if you're one of the mystery three students by looking at your D2L grades under lecture participation. You've been here the whole time clicking and clicking and clicking in and you have zero. For lecture participation, guess what? You're one of the three. As of this morning, I I actually had four, but one person noticed all by himself and fixed it. So now I only have three remaining. Two of them have more than 50 points accumulated, which means they've been here virtually every day. But I don't know who you are. So if you find yourself in that position, please let me know now, because what I have to go back and do when you tell me what's going on is update your D2L grade by hand. Check every day. So the more days that I have to update the longer that takes me. And the more I go, oh, I did not to do to check D2L before.
1: Even though the mistake was, it's probably
0: my mistake, maybe I put a typo in your UA ID and then it broke the upload. But I don't know that because, right. So let me know if you're one of those people. Uh, and this is the extracurricular opportunity. Those are my announcements. Here is my review and a baby pamphlet. Somebody give me one good reason to believe that question forms might be derived from underlying declarative sentences. way Yes or no questions. Yes or no question formation in particular. Chris? That you can, in lots of languages, the same syntactic structure looks like it can form either a question or a statement. We just do a different intonation. So that's common and it's not universal. Excellent. There are other reasons we we think that that have to do with the meaning of the sentence compared to the meaning of the question, that the meanings, the compositional meanings of those things are roughly the same. So maybe that means that the morphemes are mostly the same and the hierarchical structures are mostly the same. And we just have an additional element in the structure telling us, interpret this as a declarative or interpret this as a question. Three ways English speakers make yes, no questions. One of them was intonation only. Cassandra, do you have another one? Adding the A. Adding a question particle, eh? We can add a question particle, hmm? We can do that, right? What's the third way? Richard? You move something, right? We called that guy subject auxiliary inversion. You can call it subject tense inversion. Okay, or you can, as long as you know that there's something where we move things about, (laughs) that's a good start. What about content question formation? We have two ways of doing that. Yes? We do our content question word substitution. That's actually required for both strategies. Right? And then if we if we do the question word substitution, if we do the question word substitution, we are doing what? That's an echo question We're the echo question. Also known as WHNC2. If you've read the article, WHNC2 means contact question word gets inserted wherever the thing was that you're asking about, and you say it right in that position. The other option then is that you move things about, right? Do we do subject auxiliary inversion in English when we form content questions? Yes, we do. Mm. Yes? So we had yes or no question was intonation only, question particle, syntactic movement, subject auxiliary inversion. This question is in the form of a content question which has undergone subject auxiliary inversion and question word movement. Note the traces. But it's asking you a question that we actually didn't cover in class. Something that we mentioned in the reading. There is this phenomenon in English called do support. We talked about it, we just didn't use that term for it in class last time. Any guesses what do support is? Maybe someone not in the front three rows. Somebody who's Facebooking but who will nevertheless know do support. Do you remember how we talked about that little crazy verb do or did? You know how it gets stuck in a question sometimes if we didn't have an auxiliary to move? That's that's called do support in literature. Now, So if you are comfortable with those concepts, I think you've got it going on with respect to question formation, and I think you're capable of uh, coming up with some question formation rules for your language, picking from among those. Right. I would really, really encourage you, if you used good sentences for Field Notebook 3, and your your feedback that you'll get this week on Field Notebook 3 says, oh, great sentences, excellent. I would encourage you to use those as the sample sentences on which to build your questions for Field Notebook 4. Then you don't have to make up whole sentences, you can just put <coughs> those guys into Yes, no questions or content questions. Now, this little label down here is actually relating to the slide title. Topic for today is pragmatics. One sort of theory of how speakers do what we call pragmatics. Pragmatics is the study of how people do things with language how we use language to accomplish particular kinds of goals. One theory relating to pragmatics is called speech act theory. In your homework four, one of the questions you're supposed to answer is, what's the difference between a direct and an indirect speech act? If you've read the chapter on pragmatics, you will know the answer to that question. If you haven't, here's some practice at identifying those things. This slide title, Review, has a particular linguistic structure in English. Its form tells us it's an imperative. Remember we talked about sentences coming in sort of three flavors, declarative, interrogative, and then imperative, the command form. What about this tells you that it's an imperative? The exclamation point is one way in writing to communicate that information, right? If I say to you, review, who is supposed to review? It's a second-person subject unpronounced in English. We can have those kinds of things only in imperatives. So I will say that this has a linguistic form of imperative. And I will tell you that my intent in putting it on the slide is also an imperative intent that is, I want you to review, Okay, So I'm going to say that this represents a direct speech act. It's a speech act because it's an action I'm doing, trying to accomplish something using language, using speech. It's a direct speech act because the form of the statement is the same as my intent for the statement. Now, here's the same slide, different header. The header says, this slide is to help you review. That's a declarative linguistic form. Sometimes, we speakers of English use a declarative form even when we actually mean to get you to do something, right? So, I could have labeled the slide this way, with an imperative intent, and if I've done that, I've just performed an indirect speech act. Make sense? The linguistic form doesn't match my intent. Let me give you another example. Might you like a little review? <laughs> now we have an interi- interrogative interrogative form but I still am trying to get you to do something. So is this going to be a direct speech act or an indirect speech act? Indirect, Indirect. correct. So you now know how to define direct and indirect speech acts. Now let me ask you this. In terms of politeness, let me go back. Is that the most or the least polite way of doing it, of the three? Least, right? I would interpret that as the least polite, though most direct. Kind of in the middle, maybe? The question form is almost over polite, right? So when do we use indirect uh, speech acts like this in American English? Well, if you go into a, a restaurant and you're looking at the menu and the waiter approaches, Does the waiter say to you, order? (laughs) Does the waiter say to you, you might want to order? (laughs) What does the waiter say? Would you like to order? May I take your order, please? Indirect. Politeness. Why does the waiter do it that way? He's, go ahead, Richard. Because he's not telling what to, right to do, exactly what he's asking you what he'd like to do. And why does why does the waiter have to ask you rather than tell you? Because you're the customer, right? There's a social hierarchy at stake. And we all agree, as members of the speech community, that even if we don't realize it, if you participate in that kind of exchange and don't notice that it's weird. It, it's weird in the sense that we're not being direct to each other. We're taking it for granted that that unequal relationship should be maintained in this particular way. Okay? Now, if you go to other places, other speech communities, there might be other ways in which those kinds of relationships are maintained, right? And other contexts in which they're called for. So one could imagine a community in which they don't have this cultural belief in the customer is always right. Where, in fact, a, a person trying to purchase food is the low status person, and the person trying to sell the food is the high status person, and you could imagine going the other way. What do you want? You can, right. you could even imagine a community in which the direct speech act was interpreted as polite. And the indirect speech act was interpreted as rude. So if you want to imagine that happening, think of people you know or situations maybe you've been in where someone is being kind of <laughs> hyper polite to the extent of being annoying. And you'll see that there, it's not just that more indirectness always means more politeness. Go ahead, Sandra. So in this community where would be better, why would the answer come up with indirect? Ah, so the question is, in a community in which direct discourse would be conceived as polite, indirect discourse in a particular context perceived as rude, why would you ever use indirect discourse? Well, so one reason might be that in every community, speakers always have the opportunity to be polite and always have the opportunity to be rude. There is no such thing as a community that exists in which everybody is mandatorily always polite and there's no other way around it. Kira? Do you personally know of any communities in which, like, the waiter, for example, is a leader? I don't know of any communities in which. So, part of the problem is the notion of restaurant is sort of tied to a particular set of speech communities. I do know of communities in which you wouldn't, you know, if you're visiting someone's house and they're giving you food or something. It would be different than the the relationship that I was raised to believe, which is that a guest is always right, sort of in the way the customer is always right. So you don't know if community, which is, which is the, where they have restaurants. Yeah, no, I don't. But what it's just, it's just the limited amount of experience on my part. It's not a fact about the world. Go ahead. There believe in hierarchical relationship we have a different indirect big we let them know hey I don't think you're wrong So people have the opportunity in all societies to opt out of politeness rules. And uh, all societies that we know of utilize both direct and indirect speech acts. It's, it's my understanding my feeling my impression of the speech community in which I was raised that we actually use indirect speech acts a lot more often than we use direct ones. Which is weird, but seems to be true. And I think that's very culturally specific. So if one travels to other places, one might find people being generally sort of more more focused on direct speech acts. One might feel like, oh my word, these people are so rude. But no, the rules vary. Okay. I want to give us some practice forming some questions, and then I want to get back to this notion of speech acts and politeness. Let me uh, close the opening poll and ask uh, somebody on the teaching team, please, to go ahead and take a head count. I did. It's open. Click in. Click in. Huh. Okay. I'm going to close it and reopen Wayne, and then maybe, maybe it will. yeah okay well i'll let you i know i know you're trying i see you with your clicker we'll, we'll move on so let's content question four so the thing in blue in the sentence is the thing i want you to be asking after right if the panda has eaten bamboo <coughs> What's our echo question for for that guy? (coughs) Echo question, that's the one where the question word just gets inserted and stays where it was. The panda has eaten what? Excellent. Now, if I want to make that into a complete question with movement, I should get a thing that my flicker won't advance to. (laughs) What has the panda eaten? Now I'm leaving the little traces in there because I want to encourage you guys this will drive you nuts but also be delightful. Whenever you hear someone ask a question see if you can put the traces back in. Where did the thing start? Where was the auxiliary before your question? When you did a tree with the T's in it, yeah. is that what it stands for? A trace? When I did it that tree with the T's in it, it does stand for trace. Yes. And that's a bookmark for the original position of the What do we get here? Echo question. (coughs) I'm actually quite interested in this. If we want to know, we couldn't quite hear this part. What would we say? Well, we're wanting to ask after this. So somebody said, who might eat bamboo? Somebody else might have said, what might eat bamboo? The difference between who and what in English is an animacy distinction. And for me, predictably, if it's an animal, I always use who. But most sensible speakers of English will use what, unless it's a human. So we get a post-movement form of that. Okay, so now we're gonna ask after this. Go ahead, Chris. I was confused about the, the mic being traced because it's basically in the same spot of the uh, So when we move things out of a subject position in English, we haven't changed the relative linear order of any constituent. Right? Yes. So it's a very good question. Can we can I prove to you that the who started here and then moved up there? And the answer is I could. It would take me a long time, and the evidence for that is not on this slide. But it, so it's the smartest thing to notice. Even the might. Right. It's it's, it. it's it's the same order. Uh, movement out of the subject is interesting. It's like the might doesn't change; it's, it's still it the same thing. Yeah. So if we if we believe that we just do every question, every content question the same way as every other, notice if we start out with who might eat bamboo. We do our question word substitution, and we get who might eat bamboo. We do our subject auxiliary inversion, we get might who eat bamboo, which we never pronounce. And then, if we do our question word movement, we get who might eat bamboo, which gives us the same order we started with, but different hierarchy. So, the proof of this has to do with things we know about evidence for the hierarchical position of these things. It has to do with complex meaning construals that are crazy. So good question. I can't prove to you that this is right in two minutes. But yes, I assert it's right. So, how about this guy? If we're, if we're going to ask about how OK? Panda ate yesterday becomes when did the panda eat. So we have a question we're asking at the time. Go ahead. The second to last one. <laughs> Why did you put bamboo back in since that wasn't in the Oh, because <laughs> I'm crazy. <Okay. laughs> the panda is eating greedily. It should be the panda is eating greedily. Oh, you can't put it in that order. it not everything. A plus three for you, can erase them. Um, how about this one? I don't know how to look great. <laughs> right. How do I look? How, how do I look? Uh, and here, when question forms like this, we start to step into the world of pragmatics. If somebody you know asks you, How do I look? I What do you say? <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> you can think about a girl you know. You can think about a boy you know. You you want? To imagine. This is what you see in the person that is having That's just a content question, right? In terms of its compositional meaning, we should be able to answer with anything that fits that category of how. So appropriate answer could be, uh, "You look really stupid." <laughs> we don't answer things that way. But... So I'm going to ask you now to vote on various um, responses. So I'm going to give you a response in a moment. In each case, well, I want you to start out. Wait, wait, wait. I animated this wrong, I think. Let's do our first, sorry, first poll. Um. Imagine that somebody asks you, how do I look? Somebody dressed maybe like those people on the previous slide. First poll, imagine that person is your significant other, that is, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, sweetie. Vote one if you would answer, you look great. Vote two if you would answer, I like those colors. Three, go change your clothes. Four, it's warm outside. This is for your sweetie. So give me what you think you should answer. if Your sweetie is asking you that question. One is, it's going to vary. There's no right or, well, there is a right or wrong answer. (laughs) But it depends on the sweetie. I'm just interested. Please pick a selection in the next three or two or one. Ah, Okay. Answer five. There is no answer five. Maybe you meant I would not answer the question. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. There is no safe response. There is no safe response. Right, right. Now, okay, so keep these numbers in mind, and now let's do the same thing, but imagine the person asking you this is, in fact, your boss. Uh, <laughs> your boss is asking you, how do I look? <laughs> <Anybody> <laughs> <like to play? laughs> or are you going to answer one? You look great. Two. Oh, I like that color. Do you see what's happening in answer two? <laughs> Three. Go change. Four, it sure is warm up. Do you see what's happening? Okay, we'll discuss these options. Please click in in the next. Three, two, one, for your boss. Ah, interesting. Nobody would not answer. Well, nobody picked five. Okay, okay. Excellent. OK, so keep these responses in mind, and I'll ask you to vote on one more scenario. Now it's your younger brother or sister. You're an older child. Are you going outside? Are you going somewhere with them or not? Oh, yeah! imagine you're going with them. Let's raise the stakes. <laughs> Please pick something in the next. Three. two. One. Come on, we need three more people to answer really quickly. All right. <laughs> you guys are to your younger siblings the way my older sibling is to me. And the way I am to my younger siblings. So all's fair. All right. Let's talk about these contexts and these answers. In terms of directness or indirectness of the speech act, let's talk about what's most direct, what's least direct. The most direct thing is going to have the linguistic form that matches the speaker's intent. Okay. So this isn't the same thing as sort of overall sense of being a direct person or not. It's not a tell the truth versus not tell the truth. It's a, does the linguistic form match the intent? With your significant other, what would be your intent in answering the question? Do you want to get that person to do something? If you want to get that person to do something, then would any of these responses represent a a direct speech act? Go three, go three. number three, right? Go change your clothes is an imperative. So that would be uh, a direct speech act. What if your intent was not to get your significant other to do something? Anybody
1: nice to their sweetie who
0: would have a different intent? So sometimes our intent is to cement and solidify the relationship, right? Maybe make the person feel good. In that case... Probably the most, the example of that's most direct is item one, yes? But isn't the intention of number four also to be like, hey, yeah. like a realization of? So two and four are interesting in this regard. Your name is? Alice. Al, that's a really good question. Isn't four also kind of the intent, really two and four are intentional, the, the intent might be to avoid hurting the person's feelings. They're subject changers, Yeah. The reason I think this one is the direct response for relationship building is because it most directly relates to the linguistic form of the question asked and the intent of the answer, which is to make you feel like you look great. But they do lies, so lies aren't necessarily indirect speech acts,
1: but they are violations
0: of certain conversational norms, which we shall talk about. Later, yes. Yeah, well, well, the whole thing is that I've had different girlfriends. Some would prefer me to say one, no matter what they look like. Some would if say they, if they look right. like that, they're going If I let her go outside and then stop telling her, I can tell. <laughs> remember, whether this thing counts as a direct or indirect speech act is whether the linguistic form matches the speaker's intent. The appropriate answer for any given relationship might be different. All right. It it hinges on speaker intent. The reason I think two and four are most likely to be examples of indirect responses is because the linguistic form of these utterances does not relate to the substance of the question at all. Do you see why that might be an example of indirectness in a speech act? They're subject-changers. This one is a little bit more direct than number four, because it at least relates to the ensemble. Right? It's a way of picking out some detail that you can say something nice about. So, so it's a little bit more direct than number four. Really, really common mistake for students to make when we're looking at speech acts is to confuse personality-wise directness, honesty, bluntness with speech act directness. And those two things are separate concepts. Excellent. Okay. So pragmatics. The study of how people do things with language. And we can talk about pragmatic meanings being sort of another layer of meaning beyond the compositional one. So remember, compositional meanings are determined by the meanings of the morphemes, right? And one other thing, and their hierarchical relationships. And what that gives us is the literal meaning of any others. The literal meaning. Pragmatic meanings are not necessarily the same as literal meanings. So we know what a thing means pragmatically only when we have a context for it. So pragmatic meanings are determined by the context of use, and that includes things like the relationships of the speakers. right? So the same statement can have a very different pragmatic meaning if I say it to my younger sister versus if I say it to my boss. Um, it can be very hinged on the personal or ethnic or group identities of participants. So I can express solidarity with a friend in certain ways, in certain social groups, that wouldn't work in other social groups or if I'm trying to identify myself as a different, coming from a different group. And different speech communities have very different norms about what you're supposed to do to convey pragmatic meaning correctly, right? So usually when we study uh, meaning in language, we think that in order to understand the pragmatic meanings of utterances, we first have to get their compositional meaning. So you have to know what the literal meaning of the thing is. But then you have to know more information than just the literal meaning. You have to know things about context of use, the particular speakers, the speech community, group identities, those kinds of things. So that's a baby sloth in pajamas. <laughs> I'm going to give you an utterance, and I'm going to ask you to give me some ideas of what you think the pragmatic meaning might be. Outfit, make me look fat? <laughs> the appropriate response is always no, correct? What's the pragmatic meaning? Why do people say this kind of thing? Because they're insecure, right? They need reassurance, they're worried. So it's expressing insecurity, it's looking for reinforcements. That's the pragmatic meaning. How about this one? This is one we will use. You're waiting for a bus or something, you don't have a watch, and you turn to the person next to you and say, Do you have the time? What's the pragmatic meaning of that? Tell me what time it is, right? Now, what if the person answers the question literally? Yes. Yes.
1: (laughs) Compositional
0: meaning doesn't always get us very far. But our rules for interpreting pragmatic meaning. Are really, a lot of them, oh, I just spit, a lot of them are, um, they're really, like, we just take them for granted. We don't even notice what's we're doing them. How about this one? Oh, those fries look delicious. <laughs> 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 Get me a fire. I'm hungry. Yeah. What beautiful errand? I would. So this is interesting, The study of compliment giving and receiving cross-culturally really interesting. There are many societies in which if you make a, a speech act like that, it's a request. The <coughs> polite response is, the person gives you the thing. Now imagine you're someone from my speech community in which compliment giving is a part of politeness, it's meant to make you feel happy, and I walk around in some such community where I'm a visitor, Telling everybody I mean, oh, what beautiful earrings, let well, me get them to you. And, oh, what a lovely necklace, uh, oh, and a beautiful home. <laughs> and people don't want to talk to me anymore, right? Because our, understand, our cultural understandings of what these things mean really different. Now, okay, so imagine a scenario, person A and person B. Person A is probably me because I usually spill coffee all over. So imagine person A walks into the room and they're covered in coffee. Person B says, "Uh you spilled coffee on yourself. Person A says, you're a genius. (laughs) Now this this guy is really interesting because compositionally, it means you are a genius. But pragmatically, what does it mean? Maybe. You're a moron. No. No. <laughs> it doesn't really mean great <laughs> yeah, Right. <laughs> so So there's this, this thing we call sarcasm. Sarcasm is a way of building pragmatic meaning. In English, sarcasm has a particular kind of intonation often <laughs> you're a genius. We can cue each other to believe the opposite of the compositional meaning of what we say. Here's who's really terrible at detecting sarcasm. Anybody under about eight? <laughs> so when we think about acquisition of the parts of our grammar that we've studied so far, sounds and word building sentence structure, question formation, most kids have that stuff almost completely mastered by the time they're between five or seven years old. By the time they walk into the door of kindergarten, they can do it perfectly well. Pragmatic meanings, most of us still haven't mastered when we're old. And you can tell because we sometimes inadvertently are rude or inappropriate. Like, the pragmatic means that the acquisition of pragmatics seems to come later. So be nice to little kids and don't be sarcastic at them because they don't get it. All right. Here's some more. Now, so imagine this happens all the time. Teacher says to a class, do you have any questions about this week's material? What's the response? You guys have been in these classes? People don't even say no, right? They just go. What's the pragmatic meaning? I have them, but I'm too embarrassed to say, or I'm so confused I don't know what to ask. Or maybe for some students, it means, yeah, I don't have any questions, this material is super easy. Or I don't want to stay any longer than I have to. To strangers' meeting. Now imagine this happens. Stranger A says, how are you today? Stranger B. (laughs) (laughs) What's the pragmatic meaning of that? (laughs) I want to talk to you. I'm being rude. You should know that there are speech communities in which that's absolutely the appropriate thing to do, and this is rude. So, so, we take these things for granted, right, but they can vary massively from community to community. Same community. This is completely polite and appropriate. I sort of went back in the olden days, I would love to be in that speech community because it would take a whole lot of pressure off. <laughs> so, norms the for these pragmatic interpretations vary dramatically, and we interpret silence as well as utterances. Go ahead, Chris. What about like, and stuff like that? How are you today? And, like, listen so, to the We inflect all of this with nonverbal cues. And those vary wildly from community to community as well.
1: Things like whether you should have
0: eye contact with the person you're talking to, how far away should you stand from them, should you use your hands or not. Lots of communities in the Americas, you never use your hands to gesture wildly, as I do, but you point with your lips. That person over there. I can't do it very well. So these vary dramatically. For this reason, the study of pragmatics is sometimes called the science of the unsaid. Pragmatic meanings are the meanings you build in that you explicitly do not say. And, and the mystery of this, the beauty of it, is that every single human community that we know of does it. That is... There is no human community that anybody has documented in which people intend the literal meaning for all of their utterances, or even the majority of them. Yes? Yeah. If we place so much importance on the unspoken, why is text messaging the only way to communicate? I know. So, can text messages even convey pragmatic meanings? I you know, the, the, the emergence of the so called humorist. Yes. So, we convey pragmatic meanings even in writing. We're done for today. We will finish this little bit on psychematics. I'm going to transition into non-human animal behavior.